Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Operation Opera. Elisa and I had a really nice conversation with a dear friend of mine, Bradley Whisk, a tenor that I performed with several years ago and we've remained in contact and often talk about what opera can be and what it is. And we got to discuss some fun things about popera as well in this episode, so enjoy. Elise Peterson may introduce Bradley Whisk, uh, a tenor. Hello, Bradley. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so here we are. Is that supposed to be funny? No, or? no, no. It was. It was funny just because, you know, you just sounded cool. And I just never sound cool. So <laughs> And a little more like a baritone, perhaps. Yes, it's true. Right? Yes, he depends has a, on the day. He has a whole journey with that. Right? Oh, okay. Simple journey. Yeah? What was that journey? What was that journey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about it. No, we think... skipped the small talk here. That's right. Straight to the meat. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, no, I think I think when I started around 18, I just didn't really know what I was doing and had a lower kind of speaking voice and had a low red, uh, registration. So I think a lot of teachers initially felt to not you know push me into the tenor repertoire at such, at such a young age, figuring that if I was going to be a tenor, that I would have a bigger bigger sound. Um, and so really through my undergrad at Indiana, uh, I stuck as a baritone and then I spent a year in Toledo in their young artist program and then went and did my master's at Manhattan School of Music. Holy Toledo. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Pretty bad city. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then towards the end of, uh, my master's is kind of when I started switching to tenor. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Whose idea was it? Uh, Mine. And a couple other teachers that always kind of believed I was a tenor, but just wasn't ready for it. Mm-hmm. So how old were you when you did, when you started to shift? Well, I mean, I always had, you know, high Ds and E flats, even at 18. I just, I think it was just one day I kind of flipped the switch and said, okay, what do I need to do to be a tenor? And for, for I think for a male vocalist, it's really mastering the passaggi. It was never the high notes that were the issue for me. It was just mastering mm-hmm. kind of F sharp, G, A flat. Yeah. Um, because if you can't really negotiate that and, and be able to sing in that area of the voice frequently, you, you're just a high baritone. Um, and that's yeah, what, it's the you know, same thing for sopranos, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think half people would say oh you're just high baritone well then how can i sustain singing you know 20 high c's over a course of an hour lesson um you know so it was kind of i i knew in my gut i was a tenor i just kind of had this low voice as well i mean i sing down to low d sometimes low c um which is some basses can't even sing that low so I just think I kind of have one of those freaky voices. Basically, he's a freak of nature, and <laughs> we all hate him, except we all love him. <laughs> so that's the short story. Ah, excellent. Yeah. So how's tenor going for you? That's great. That's great. Yeah? I um, was so, after I finished my master's, was still kind of going after the whole opera, operatic career, um, you know, as a tenor and did, did, you know, win some competitions and uh, almost made it to the finals at the Metropolitan Competition, but kind of decided that it was too one-dimensional for me, um, for myself. I know not, not a lot of people agree with that, but for me personally, it was just, I felt there was more I wanted to do with my career. Uh, the only way I can kind of easily explain it was, uh, I don't know if you remember Mario Lanza uh, from the 1950s, he kind of did a blend of more he could have sung on any, you know, operatic stage, but he chose to do more of a commercial career. Could he? Yeah, absolutely. Could he really? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? Man, really? when I listen to Mario Lanza, is this terrible? I'm going to say something really controversial right now. Oh, okay. Do it, because Rachel. Do I, it. I feel like when I listen to him sing, I'm mm-hmm. like, what is, what's happening? 
Really? In what regard, though? Like, I just don't, I don't, I don't feel like he's on The Voice. He's definitely on The Voice. I mean, I think a lot of his work was, you know, which a lot of classical singers will shun or shy away from microphones. But I think because a heavy amount of his work was uh, recorded in that manner, um, some people think, well, we're really getting the real what it would be like on stage. And he actually, before he really immersed himself into kind of that Hollywood um, career, uh, he did Madame Butterfly uh, in New Orleans, and I think one other opera. I think he did. Um, so he did Pinkerton, and I think he did Alfredo. I think in Traviata. Um, well, and those aren't exactly small. He had an incredible voice. <laughs> well, I, I really do. I mean, he he was from yeah. Philly. He was uh, had a huge Italian Italian background. All his family was uh, was Italian. He was a Philly guy, uh, and he really did. I I believe have the real kind of Italianate tenor sound that I appreciate, like sure. a Pavarotti. Sure. Uh, even Pavarotti would, would actually listen to his music and, and, and he would, you know, sometimes vocalize listening to Mario Lanza and of course a lot of tenors will listen mm. to Caruso even though it's very difficult because that was kind of the first turn of the century when so they just early. started yeah, recording. recording. But Caruso was the first to sell a million records, um, which is kind of cool little fact. Um of any artist, of any wow. yeah, any genre of music, hmm. and um, so I, I just no, I, I think I disagree. <laughs> I think he had an incredible. I mean, it wasn't um, a dramatic tenor, but there, I think there's only very few. Not even Corelli is considered a dramatic tenor. Well, Giacomini would, I would mean, be. Isn't isn't Alfredo a dramatic role? No, 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 it's no, no, no. It's a lyric. No, it's a, no. It's just because it's Verdi, but it's early Verdi, and it's I it's think... one of the easier tenor roles, actually. Yeah. Alfredo. Oh, okay, I yeah. think maybe every time that I've done <laughs> that I've done Traviata or I've seen Traviata, I've been really close to the tenor at different times, and I've just thought, man, that head is going to like explode <laughs> off the top. No, it's not head. really a, <laughs> in any way dramatic in any way, and it's actually not that high of a role to be completely candid. Right. I would say what's a little more taxing would be Rigoletto as the Duke. For sure. Um, but that's more for a, a lighter uh, lyric tenor. It's not even for, it shouldn't ever be done by a spinto or a dramatic or even a, a full lyric. Um, but yeah, Traviata is more kind of one of those throw-off tenor roles. I mean, it shouldn't be done by a leggero either or no, a no. character tenor. No, no. Um, because it is a lead you know, tenor role. Right. And I think the intimacy between... You don't want everybody between, to be laughing. Yeah, yeah, but also the intimacy between <laughs> a leading tenor and, and, you know, Violetta is very important. Because sure. that love, uh, kind of that Romeo-Juliet type, um, uh, you know, I guess back and forth banter. and That it looks plausible, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So you're not getting like uh, uh, Napoleon and putting him in uh, lifts and trying to sell them. Oh, I see where you're going with that. <laughs> it helps that Bradley is tall. Yeah, but anyway. Um, yeah, may I just interject quickly because I saw a video on YouTube recently of Anna Mofo. I always say her name with an Italian accent, but she was also totally very American. American. She was, She's from Jersey, yeah. but that's okay. Sorry. Is she from Jersey? I thought she was from... Uh, Never mind. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, my first but teacher anyway. actually had a relationship with her. So Anna Mafo. <laughs> he and everybody else. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. No, he yeah. did sleep with a lot of men. Um, she. I saw. I saw a, a, an Act One bohem, uh, with her and Richard Tucker, and it was weird because he looked like a gnome or a leprechaun <laughs> or something next to her. But I didn't know she was like. I didn't think she was tall. She's not I didn't that think tall. she was like Tuck- a large person. Yeah, Tucker but, is pretty But small. together, like, it was really unbelievable. The, like, there was no chemistry for me watching it because they, they had obviously very carefully staged it so that he was never really standing right next to her on the same, sure. like, the same level so that it was clear the disparity in height because she was probably, I want to say three, four, and maybe as many as six inches taller than him. I don't know how <laughs> tall he was. I actually looked it up later because I was pretty like, short I don't know guy, he was so short. Like five, two, uh, yeah. How tall was he? I think five five. I think okay. he was pretty short. Uh, maybe okay. five four five, around there. Um, yeah. About Tom Cruise's height. Oh. Yeah, I just felt it so awkward <laughs> because I was like, "Oh, she's trying so hard to act like she's in love with him." And someone actually commented in the in the comments below on YouTube about, "Looks like she's singing with her grandfather or something like that." But yeah, anyway, yeah, I, I I also believe that the that the characters and the and the relationships should be believable in opera, ideally. You know what's interesting? Like, I was just thinking about this in the, in the 50s. You know, you're talking about mm-hmm. Lanza, and, and this is pro- this recording was probably from the 60s, I imagine, with 
Moffo and Tucker. Probably. And I yeah. feel like because TV and just the ability to, you know, see video was so new. Mm-hmm. I think people as audience members were so excited by the experience that they were less, you know, critical of <coughs> the visual aesthetic being um, totally believable. I don't know. Um, and I think, and I wonder if maybe opera is actually suffering because of that. Uh, mm. Suffering, I... In the sense that, like, you know, here are two people that, whose voices, I imagine they sounded glorious together. Yes? No? Well, they're both you know, amazing singers, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, Tucker was, the only reason Tucker didn't get as much publicity is because he was dealing with Delmonico and Corelli, and Corelli and Delmonico were the kind of the two most sought after tenors during that time yeah um and so he kind of even though he was a leading tucker was a leading um a metropolitan singer i think he kind of took you know the background just because of those two powerhouse italian tenors hmm. that were kind of dominating during that time and maybe slightly taller than he was <laughs> sorry i'm a tall soprano so you know i'm a little like, bit biased I, that little squareness the squareness of mm-hmm. of of humans when when you get you get so much power into such a, an interesting frame and it just seems to come out of them like that right it just kind of yeah. like and it hits you and i feel like it's a very common thing that 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 square body and and really big um kind of wall of sound sure but getting back to to the lack of popularity in opera i think it's just due to that the ticket prices are still uber expensive most the audience you know the um kind of the elderly that were kind of the the following opera in that generation are are dying out and these younger generation have these quick fixes like you know twitter instagram these that their their attention span has has um really been depleted yeah diminished Uh is the perfect word Uh um and and so that and and also what opera even the metropolitan i've seen you know many productions there and a couple at la opera but they try to push on this kind of um you know the pretty opera singer um, slash like these new exciting productions of Tosca where they're doing uh, very interesting things on stage. I won't uh, maybe talk about them <laughs> on this podcast. I don't know what the rating Topless. is. What are you uh, Topless Tosca? What? Not no. Tosca herself, but in uh, oh gosh, what's his name? <laughs> um, the bad guy. What's his name? Scarpia. 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 Yeah, in Scarpia's place, he has some. That that was the one that they did. I saw it live in HD, so I saw like up close, yeah, like, I mean, more I, than I, I wanted I, to. I, yeah, Back in like two thousand seven or something, maybe. Yeah, with Carita Matila as Tosca, and yeah. yeah, they had at least three supers who were who did not have tops on. Yeah, not like not not just. Doorway, it, it, like well, no, it wasn't a, just a that. They they, they oh, also were on a couch. Just like his harem. And, and, oh, yeah, it was gross. very doing other things very interesting so so i I don't think that my my point is um is that i don't think that that's the solution i think um again we're fighting against high ticket costs and prices Uh, we just got out of the recession in 2008 2009 people are still suffering from that and no one really wants to spend 150 200 to 400 dollars per ticket um, even if you do the student discount, which is great, but you're going to be in the nosebleed section. And, and if you're not a big fan of opera, you're going to have a hard time appreciating if you're all the way in the back, especially at the Met. It is, is ridiculous. It's I mean, it looks like you're looking at mice. Um, it's, it's, it's Look, not it moved. Yeah. Wow. It moved. Was that a guy or a girl or a horse? Or... So what's the solution? I think there just has to be something that's just more progressive. I think that you know. I think what like I'm trying to do. Like a topless harem. In no, the I mean, yeah, that's act of, uh, of uh, Tosca. That's very. It's such a bummer. Sorry, I just have to talk about this, and then I want. I'm sorry. I no, go you. ahead. Go ahead. I feel like that second act because I actually just saw it in L.A. and I was reminded, even though, well, I won't go into it. I was reminded how wonderful the tension is. In that in that act, how wonderful mm. that sort of back and forth is between them, and mm-hmm. I would just feel like if there was if there were other people in that scene, it takes away from that, you yeah. know, because then it's no longer truly intimate. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, yeah, I, 
know. You know, I, I just think, I don't think there's one silver, silver bullet, uh, to be completely candid. Um, but I think, you know, the purist to opera uh, would, would, you know, shy away from this because I do think you need to cut a lot of the music, oh, unfortunately. Verdi, um, long-winded. Well, not just, I mean, look, take the ring cycle, you know, we're not even going to get started. Verdi, I mean, take, you know, five and a half to six hours worth of for one, you but know. But you know what? You have such an amount of people that love every moment of it that That's I feel not like, true. I, 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 feel, I, I don't, sorry, I, I have to I feel like that. Wagner is one of the only uh, composers that people like still are willing to pay like the ring cycle will sell out okay if we stop 20 goes. people and would say would you are you willing to listen to a six-hour opera in german that you don't understand okay, so you're talking about more than like just the sales of tickets you're talking about how to get people yeah like, because we have to get mainstream people we can't just okay. get the opera purists i mean of course right. i mean you know we love opera uh, I could sit there because I can appreciate it because I spent seven years in undergrad and masters, um, you know, and, figuring out what and, was going on. Well, studying the yes. music and 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 um, music history and and knowing the the thoughts behind the leitmotifs and things of that nature and the Sprechstimme and whatever you know other terms we could throw out there. But I think in terms of get getting a mainstream audience back to opera, which is what it needs in order to survive, mm-hmm. the opera purists are not enough to sustain a company that spends maybe five, six million on one production. We're talking about the Metropolitan Opera. So what do you want to see? I think it just it has to be more exciting. It has to be more thrilling. It has to be more accessible. Um, How? I, I, I think there has to be more visual effects, uh, something on the long lines of like a David, David Copperfield and, and illusions and VR somehow. That's even more complicated than another podcast. Um, because I think VR is the, wow. is the next you know future generation for media and, and other um, That's platforms. That's a really interesting idea. VR opera. No, like, I don't. I see. I don't want to that, talk about too much. I'm actually that, working on it. But. What would that be like? <laughs> well, it can't be the entire opera, but no. I think you know I definitely have some ideas. I've definitely been working on it for the past three, four years, and um, you know that was what my meeting was the yeah, other yeah, night yeah. with someone who's kind of the godfather currently of VR. Um, and Tyson Sadler? No. Uh, Chris Milk oh. is his name. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's pretty incredible. But I think in, in a you know, short answer that I think that's along the lines of what needs to happen to be completely candid. And again, a lot of purists um, will be or like, no, that's that's blasphemous. That's, you know, that we would never do something like that. We'll never consider that. And I think that's what I've been fighting every time I try to talk to someone, you know, that maybe is a director of an opera company or, you know, they're not rude about it. But I think they're not yet receptive to the idea, even though I see articles of opera companies that are, you know, filing for bankruptcy. Rachel and I are really open to to uh, well, and especially Rachel. Rachel moved away from New York to L.A. in order to sort of pursue opera and classical music from a different angle. Oh, absolutely. Right? I, I think know. that's why we're such great friends, to be yeah. c- completely honest. I think she understands that, and she knows that I love opera. I'm never degrading it in any way. I'm just, because I'm a a kind of visionary type person, I, I'm just trying to think of ways to, to bring more of a mainstream audience back to it so that it can survive and thrive. I think it's a beautiful art form that needs to be on, on the forefront again. Do you see yourself as kind of a post-opera singer? Hmm. Uh, not necessarily. Um, I think I definitely, probably around 2011, 2012 is when I kind of did steer away from it, where I stopped doing competitions and things of that nature in New York City uh, to pursue mm-hmm. what I've been pursuing. Um, but if I were offered something, uh, I would definitely not shy away from it. I would still still be very receptive to doing it, for sure. Well, like we were just having a conversation a little while ago about, you know, the unsustainable nature of, like, a regional career, you know, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, this is one of the reasons why, you know, I think opera is so hard for anyone who who hasn't done really major contracts with um, young artist programs or summer programs, you know, whether they're, you know, three years or three months. Like, if, if you don't have those credits in America, how do you get yourself, you know, to even move forward? And we're talking about, you know, you can stay in the regional 
circuit for years and people do and 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 you know because you do need to perform if you are mm-hmm. truly a performer it's mm-hmm. a part of who you are and you have to express that mm-hmm. but um but that isn't sustainable like as well, yeah. an actual like working you know, right yeah i mean i have a lot of friends i mean i have friends that are singing constantly in b houses actually and they're not you know able to get to, not because they're not talented enough to get to the a houses it's just it becomes it does become a political battle at that point you know when you want to sing for san francisco opera or the metropolitan or la opera now because you know conlin and domingo's push to really build that program um you know it, they are barely getting by but they are singing a lot and they are singing even at b houses you know which you'd think okay they should have a very sustainable life but yeah i mean those seat what like 2500 to 3500 well, i wouldn't there? say even that it's money. more about the it's more about the budget than yeah, the exactly. size of the theater exactly oh, okay. right um and so you know if you if you want to have a family and children it's it's just not it's not practical um with that and that's it's kind of depressing because we spent so many years perfecting our craft learning languages learning music theory learning pedagogy and all these um, amazing things but but not really learning how to sing sorry well, in some cases that's true <laughs> not all cases i mean i think that's sure, whenever sure, sure. a young singer comes to me and asks me i say well make sure you choose a university or conservatory based upon the teacher if they if you feel like you have a connection with them you feel like you're growing with them that's the most imperative thing Absolutely. you know um and i didn't know that when i first started i just you know someone said literally because i started when i was 18 and the university is great they do eight operas a year dude go there i mean that's crazy and and but you know it still was a great decision but if i had known this now i probably would have maybe done something a little bit different i music, don't know music business and then studied privately on the side or something something along those lines you absolutely yeah. yeah so what are your thoughts since we've been doing a lot of talking <laughs> My thoughts? Yes. Oh, um, well, you know, I've reflected a lot on this. My, uh, my, I'm still paying off grad school debt, and I think to myself, was it wise to pursue a university education surrounding performance? Because that's what I've always wanted to do, and that's what I've always done. Um, and I'm not sure that that a university education, well, and I should say that, or a a master's level education is really necessary for a performing career. I think that what's most important, like you're saying, is the teacher and uh, studying with somebody who who gets your voice and understands how to, how to help you overcome whatever obstacles you face. You know, because we all have strengths and weaknesses in our individual instruments and uh, to be a performer with a sustainable technique and a, and you know the ability to sustain a career, uh, you have to have uh, you have to you have to know your own instrument and you and so a teacher who can help you do that and help you understand how to how to teach yourself and how to um, yeah sort of the ins and outs of what's it what it takes and where the pitfalls are in your in your own voice. That's the most important thing for a performer. Uh, absolutely i completely agree with everything you're saying i i also add to that perfection is impossible so i think a lot of especially classical singers are are perfectionists i'll admit i'm a perfectionist as well and i think there is there has to be a little bit more freedom and being able to let go so yes you learn technique up to a certain point there that should be your foundation but i think it's also really imperative to just let go because i remember a lot of these opera companies wanted it to be almost perfect you know, if if you carried that eighth note a little too long, oh, you know, forget it. We're going to cancel your contract. And I think that that's what I loved about the golden era of singing, you know, with the Totsies, the Cali, the Callas, the Corelli, the, you know, we can keep going on with a list of singers of during that golden era. But I really felt then they were able to just perform, you it, know. It, this goes back to actually something that my teacher was saying today and she was talking about you know the raising and the honing of the diva or devo right the actual creating of a star mm-hmm. of a voice yeah. that is you know luminescent right like a voice that, mm-hmm. that 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 sort of centers everything else um yeah takes such time well and, and it takes, takes yeah go ahead i was just going to say it takes it takes somebody 
with with knowledge and expertise and skills and a vested interest in that singer. So Callis had had uh, Seraphine, mm. and um, Sutherland had Richard Bonning, and I, I feel like these these divas. Well, and poor Anamafo. Speaking of her, she didn't really have anybody with her best interest at heart. She had a lot of people who were who were greedy to to have her because she was beautiful and so talented. But a lot of her talent was just she natural. was just sort of a natural singer, and natural it came very singer. naturally to her. Yeah. But then she was she was tapped out, and that's so tragic oh, because fuck. it was unnecessary. But she didn't really have somebody in her corner to make sure that she wasn't um, overused. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But I think also again, what I was kind of touching upon was just that the vocal freedom. And almost not feeling this pr- pressure, the scrutiny that everything must be completely in, in tempo, and you can't take your own uh, different coloration of a of a interpret uh, more of an interpretation of a piece or an aria. And I think that that's what made it exciting during that golden era. Is yes, okay, they did have most of them did have a great foundation, had someone behind them. Um, well, Corelli really didn't, but he was definitely a natural singer, and he started late as well. I think he made his debut around 34, 35 years old. Um, but I think it was just that being able to do what you want. You had that freedom to, to give your own interpretation. So it wasn't like Picasso going to Chagall and saying, no, that stroke was wrong. Try it this way. Or, you know, like mm-hmm. they all had their own unique style, and that's what made them individuals, and that's what made them unique. And I think that's what made opera during that time so exciting not only did you have these amazing voices raw amazing voices but they just were their own individual artists within a cast of you know then you put them together and it's even more magic so i mean yeah i think the temptation these days to produce sound and even to imitate uh past singers is really strong and so we have a lot of people sort of not singing with their natural voice and their natural resonance, but trying to make, trying, going for the result of sounding like somebody that they've heard. Yeah. And, and the result is totally unsustainable technique and short careers. And it's, it is, it's sad because we have to go back to finding that, finding that uniqueness and embracing what it, what, what happens for us naturally with Absolutely. with technique but also with yeah with our own voice yeah like you think about Corelli and who did he have to listen to well he didn't really have recordings much right I mean he, he yeah really he had some ones, he had some but... I just think he had some master tenors like Volpe and things like that that were that wanted to work with him and and help him out and even um he you know well no it was more Pavarotti that uh gave Sutherland a lot of credit on support um, because he was very inspired by those tenors as well. Um, he just was a masterful technician. He was obsessed with technique. Mm-hmm. But Corelli, yeah, he did have some people um, around him that kind of led but, him in the right direction. Right, but I guess what I'm saying is, like, all of these people, they didn't have, like, their own personal iPod, right? With, exactly, like, every, You know, they, right. they didn't have, like, well, I'm going to listen to these three sopranos or these three tenors and sort of see how each yep. of them do, do it differently. No, that's But true. it is always fun, like, when, I, <laughs> when I'm starting a new aria and I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen once. Mm-hmm. I will listen once to a singer do it. And then I will put it away because memory is enough, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't want to start to remember the habits of somebody else or, or turn some, like make my habit something that somebody else does well and just do it poorly. Um, but it's always funny to like listen and be looking at a score and, you know, exactly Bradley, what you were talking about, like <laughs> people are take a lot of liberties, you know, when you're a diva. <laughs> you're like I'm gonna hold this for seven years, and nobody says no, you know, because because well, it's, it's glorious. And yeah, why but, would you stop that? But it also thrilled the audience. Absolutely. And at the They're end like, of the when's day, it gonna end? When are they gonna breathe? But at the end of the day, I mean, if you listen to live recordings during that age, you hear the, these long applauses and yeah. and people redoing arias two to three times. Absolutely. I think the record once was like five. Wow. And, and, and you had this applause that was thunderous, that it was like, it must have, they must have felt like God and goddesses, you know, on mm-hmm. stage, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just pouring out my soul and my heart, which is what it should be. Um, but then, they, you know, the, the, the audience is so receptive to it, and that's why they want to come back. And that's why they were always sold out. 
Um, and I think we have to find a way of, to get that back again. And I think one of that too is by allowing the singer to have a little bit more liberty because it used to be kind of the singers. Now it's the conductors that if you don't do what the conductor says, you're fired essentially. And I've, I've talked to a lot of my friends where that's been the case where they've butted heads and the conductor has kind of gotten that, you know, godlike role where they're like, we don't like X, Y, get rid of him, find somebody else. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, and I'm also not trying to be all uh, Debbie Downer about it, but I'm, I'm trying to be actually proactive and I'm trying to do things to hopefully make a difference and bring people back to it and more of a mainstream audience. One of my favorite experiences, like speaking of conductors, like, <laughs> so in college, I used to get tickets that were really cheap to go to the Met because I worked for the student life office. So I, I got these super cheap tickets and I, I brought this guy with me who had never been to the opera before. And of course the conductor comes out and then the spotlight goes on them and everyone's clapping and he looks around and he's like, what are they doing? And I said, well, they're, they're clapping for the conductor who's approaching you know, the stand here. He's gonna go and the, the podium. And, and he's like, I'm not clapping for him. And I was like, why? <laughs> and he said, what's he done? He hasn't done anything. All he's done is walk down the road. And I, was, and I just had to laugh. I was like, yeah, I guess like, you know, I mean, I mean, it, but, but it's sort of like an example of, of, you know, where do we put our trust, right? Where do we put our, um, what do we want to succeed? Like, or what do we expect to succeed? Or what do we expect to see um, and hear and know? I mean, obviously a conductor is essential. You know, they're the one that, you know, they keep the time. They, they, they and they help sure, you, you sure. Know, infuse you with, you know, dramatic, you know, sensibility. But because depends. they also know instrumentalists, they are extremely talented themselves and are also been playing instruments since they were five years old. So yeah. they're all, they're also very, very good musicians. So a conductor is essential. Sure. You're right. It is. But, <laughs> but I mean, if he wasn't, he or she wasn't theoretically there, I think it still would be pretty sure, sure, good. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I, well, I've, I've had, I've had sort of the, the the opposite experience sometimes where like I did this concert aria uh -huh. and I had I had someone conduct and all of the instrumentalists were like we, we, we don't we don't want him and I was like what <laughs> but don't don't you need him isn't a conductor like really really important and and in in this experience and it was a small ensemble and they're like no we'll just watch the first violin like we'll just watch the concert master right and you know they'll keep the time and bring us all in and we'll just watch them and, and I thought that was interesting because it felt more egalitarian yeah is that the right word I sure. think that's the right word like like it felt like everyone was you know contributing and I think it's more of an organic experience too and I think because you're all like an earlier you're all experience. but you're also all watching each other too and you're all kind of feel like you're individual musicians which is Bradley what I love doesn't want a conductor <laughs> no I'm not saying that I'm just saying I think it's feasible you know I don't think that that's the needs to be the case but uh um because you don't want you know six different people taking six different tempes so um but anyway I don't know any other questions <laughs> or thoughts or ideas about conductors no just anything in general of what we're talking oh. about I, yeah. I, you want to change the subject? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> um, I have something, actually. I've been, uh, I was at a coaching yesterday, and I was talking to um, my coach about, uh, about how I've begun singing with my ukulele. I bought a ukulele at the beginning of the year, and I've taught nice. myself some jazz chords, and it's music I've been singing for as long as I've been singing classically, but I just have never really had a way of, of accompanying myself. I guess the same could be said of, of my arias because I don't have a way of accompanying myself on those either, but I just didn't have as many avenues for exploring that or for sharing it. And so I just got this ukulele and learning jazz chords and I have a YouTube channel and blah, blah, blah. And I was telling him about how when I sing that music, it just really flows out of me. And he said, yeah, um, do you know Eileen Farrell? And I said, yeah, sure, of course. But I didn't know that Eileen Farrell was a crossover artist. I I never knew that about her. Nice. I had only ever heard her classical stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't so know that either. You didn't? Okay. 
I, I, it's huge though. I mean, she had, she made a, a lot of albums actually as like more of a jazz singer hmm. and she's brilliant. Like he started playing some of her stuff for me and I was like, what? Yeah, like, she I, know, sounds... I know Renee Fleming really tried that first and everyone told her to be just a jazz singer and then someone heard her sing. That's uh, terrifying to me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who recommended that. Well, not, no, she wanted not, to be not a my jazz people. She wanted to be a jazz singer, and then she got into, fell into opera and Juilliard yeah. and all that. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> fell into Juilliard. I love Renee Fleming's voice. It is totally angelic, and I have heard her perform live pretty fairly close up, and she also favored us with some jazz numbers on the concert, and I'll just say that I preferred the other, not the jazz, so much. Yeah. But, you know, it's like Pavarotti and Friends, right? And he, like, tries to sing The Rose or whatever, something. <laughs> yeah, you know? but the, and it's the like, reason they don't, they can't do it is because they don't, they don't, well, the thing is it's, they don't abandon the technique. To sing, because I've recently had to learn how to sing pop and things like that um, for a potential audition, um, you have to abandon the technique. And you you know, really do. And you know it's what, a 180 difference. You know what else? The, in the mainstream world, right, you say to someone, who's an opera singer? Pavarotti. That's it. You're right? That's like all that anybody knows. And the reason why is because he did sing with Celine Dion. Well, exactly. Right? And because well, he, oh, he sang with everyone. He sang with everybody. Whitney Houston. <laughs> I, I posted it. I posted it. Did you see, Rachel? I posted um, him and Michael Bolton yes, singing. Because um, why not? Juba. <laughs> well, Michael Bolton loves opera, and he really wanted to be an opera singer, actually. That's oh, why he my, did? Yeah. Oh, he's still studying. With my teacher in uh, New York City, he studies uh, with him. Bill, right? Bill Schumann. Um, Michael Bolton studies with Bill Schumann. Yeah, because he's obsessed. Okay, he's obsessed my, with opera. He's you know. In, yeah, I didn't know that. But one of my professors was like, "Why are you talking about Michael Bolton in like past tense? He's still singing and he sounds great." But I had no idea that he had studied opera. He doesn't sound like he's using uh, opera like classical technique. No, but he he's still not. can reach these high notes, you know, and and they sound good. And it, like for a pop singer to be able to sing opera and make it sound good. That's impressive. Also, yeah. Sting. Sting. I saw Sting do La Chida en la Mano with, like, Angela Georgiou or someone. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was hot. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, it still sounded like Sting. It didn't sound like opera, but it was it was good. And I yeah. think baritone's probably, you know, more in the wheelhouse of... Although, actually, I think Michael Bolton just has a naturally higher voice, no, maybe. No, he, he does. And so does Sting. I mean, it's Sting's earlier stuff with the police and things. Like, he, he can sing pretty high, but it's a completely different... It's a, I mean, just from practicing the past month, it's just a higher laryngeal position. You have a wider mouth. It's not as, as like an embouchure like it is with opera. Um, it's not, I guess, a column kind of up and down. It's more lateral right. or horizontal. Right. And, and, you know, it's brighter like this. You know, you just, it's, it, that's why when you hear Sting talk sometimes or uh, who else? Phil Collins. They kind of talk Ooh. like this. They, you know, they kind of have like a lower voice. But when you sing pop, because you put this higher laryngeal position, wider mouth, it becomes already it already becomes a little higher. Um, it's kind of interesting. It's like, almost like an illusion. Um, but <laughs> it really it's is not a really a higher laryngeal position than used for speaking, though, right? We just have a slightly lower laryngeal position for for opera. Absolutely. No, but it definitely is. It's definitely lower than than pop for sure. Even if you're not yeah. physically depressing your your larynx. Um, that you, you know, if you, even if you look in a mirror and you just do that kind of that trumpet embouchure, um, or you sing in umlaut or whatever, you can see that your larynx will naturally dip a little bit lower, not because we're pressing it down. Uh, cause obviously even in the classical realm, we would never want to push the larynx down physically. Um, but you know, it is definitely a lower laryngeal position. Um, and it's a different mouth position as well. Yeah. So cool. So my point so, was, it was slightly long-winded, but it's because Pavarotti did not abandon the classical technique. That's why he kind of sounded a little silly. Well, that's you know, neat. when he would go, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, instead of regrets, I had a few, it's more conversational. It's completely different, you know? Yeah. So what are you singing now? I mean, everything. Everything from Nessendorma to, to um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a pop song called Death of a Bachelor, um, to Elvis-type music, to... Um, oh, where are you singing the Elvis stuff? 
Uh, just all over the place. Like these little gigs for, for vineyards, for small parties, for, uh-huh. you know, uh, people that have events where they're doing concerts and they don't necessarily sort- want opera. They want a mix or, ah. you know, or doing like the prayer or something. Or like, for example, I'm doing a concert. Popra. Yeah, exactly. Like the, you know, popera and classical crossover stuff. So, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, it's just... I, I think why not if you can dive into other genres of music and sound okay in it you might as well you might as well leverage it yeah that's what my coach was saying yesterday he's like it's great it, however many styles of singing you want to do it's just going to give you more sort of more variety more options more colors more things to choose from on your on your little artist palette well, and it's, absolutely it's an interesting thing because I think when we were young I don't know if you guys had this experience but but teachers would say, don't do anything else. Just study this right now. Like, just focus on this. And maybe that's just because of my ADD and they're, like, trying to, you know, rein me in. But, like, <laughs> I, um, but it was, you know, this desire to help me sort of get the classical thing together so that then you can sort of go out and do other things. I don't know yeah, if that's... No, there's definitely a lot of validity to that um, because as young singers, when you don't even really know, you don't even have a technique um, for opera, I mean, yes, it is very... It can be very destructive. Um, but if you know, if you're smart about it and you have the training experience and you're able to have that flexibility or a broader palette... Um, as we were just saying and kind of concluding was that is very useful and it's but but i think for young singers it it could be absolutely dangerous so i think rachel that is a good point i think it just depends on where you are and how healthy the the vocal production is you know if you're wailing wailing away and trying to do pop and grinding on those those and having a lot of subglottal pressure you're going to screw up all your different voice types but if you're smart about it and you negotiate it correctly I think it can be extremely beneficial, especially in these times, you know? Yeah. I think it comes down to, and I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but I find like when I sing in another genre of music, sometimes I feel like a fraud. Like I just sort of feel Mm. like, you know, I'm not, I'm not trained in this. Like I love this, but this is not in my wheelhouse as much as it is in my heart. And so I sometimes feel and so I wonder how much really does come down to confidence about, you know. Yeah, right? I used to feel that way, Rachel. I definitely yeah. did. And I did a belt lesson last summer. I think we talked about this, right? Did I tell you about that, Rachel? You probably did. I yeah. Don't, I don't remember. <laughs> we I'm talk sure a lot. We, yeah, we have. About a lot of different yeah, things. Yeah, a lot of different things. So we probably about it. <laughs> um, So my, my friend Christy Turnbow, who I, was, I went to undergrad with, uh, she is now, she has a master's in um, music theater pedagogy, which is a brand new program that they're starting to introduce. And she has a job now with, um, they have to now people are Boston conservatory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and she, anyway, she, she teaches, you know, this speech level singing and I, I just was so curious about what that would be. And plus she's a friend. So I was like, let's do a lesson. And so that I spent this hour doing, um, the thing with uh, making it more speech-like and and sort of dropping the technique and just being and it was such a different experience for me. But I think that I figured out I could be really successful at it with yeah. you know it, within this short hour I could kind of figure out how to do it and and you know um, that gave me a lot of confidence totally. to sing because I always thought I'm not a belter you know I always would totally disown belt like I was like you know I can sing pretty much everything but I'm not a belter. And now I feel like I actually can belt too, which is kind of cool. That is cool. <laughs> and then with the ukulele stuff, like I've always loved singing that, but I'm like, now it's just mine. So I think it's about taking ownership and and understanding that you as an artist can do whatever you can do, like period. You know what I mean? And it and every everyone's likes and dislikes and preferences, personal preferences are going to vary and not everyone's going to like you. Um, but if you if you can do it, you should own it. Absolutely. I completely completely agree with you. And I think, you know, Rachel, you touched upon it before and then you just said it. um, Confidence. I think when I first was trying to do literally like not like Frank Sinatra was still like crooning and I can go back to my baritone days with pop. Again, you have to abandon everything classically, um, even when you belt, really, um, because it's kind of a different approach. But yeah, I was definitely insecure with it. But I think when I said, you know what, why? 
I think it's going well and I just need to be confident. So I think if you are going to do that, you should at least try to be confident with it. And then if it's still not working or no one's really receptive to it, then you know you probably should steer away from maybe just that genre. But it doesn't mean that you know closes the door on every single genre, you know, because sure. jazz is even different. It's not sure. really pop. I mean, it's, you know, pop is its own beast, its own entity. Um, so I think, yes, I think confidence is extremely important to just go with it you know i mean we have we have to have somewhat of a good voice because we're able to do opera you know <laughs> like you, you yeah. know so i wonder i wonder if it also like for me when it comes to pop i feel like i've spent so many years training to have perfect pronunciation and like i mean pronunciation to the point where i mean like tom grubb's book about french Mm-hmm. O's, there's like seven of them. Oh, right? I studied that in, right? in Manhattan School of Music. Yeah, yeah, there's like, cool. yeah, like 5,000. Enough to drive a person <laughs> yeah. mad. But I mean, so that you're so focused on, you know, each, the slight change in your mouth, you know, right. where you're feeling the placement of it. And it's like in pop, you know, I almost feel like you should like put on some kind of accent or something no, in no. order to no 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 in order to like try and avoid the over enunciation like the over, I know what you mean but you know I saying? think if you think conversational with pop it's more about you're telling a story See, but if you get like, too yeah. French because I know what you're talking about because yeah. I did this too like you know when you sing in English it sounds even for opera singers it sounds silly when you sing in English because you know the diction that the you have to do with it in order for, yeah, for sure. in a house with it's not amplified you don't have a mic in front of you they need to understand what you're saying and if you're singing in certain registrations it's hard to understand unless you do certain vowel modifications so that the english sounds you know like the word you're trying to, to say sure. or sing um but with with pop i think if you can really cognitively say this is more conversational i'm telling a story i'm just speaking and then i'm adding pitches to it um, because if you hear some live musicians that are not the best of singers, you know, that's kind of what you, you the essence you get, mm-hmm. you know, because they aren't as obsessive with intonation, pitch and all these things. They're really just trying to exp- like take Janis Joplin. I didn't think she had the prettiest voice, but she, you could definitely feel her soul. You could feel the emotion and it was very conversational yeah, and very intimate. Yeah, for sure. But also I feel like even in conversation my speaking is significantly changed or has been significantly changed over the years because of the amount of diction that I have studied. Sure. No, I know. I mean, some people think, are, are you from Europe? Because sometimes they say I have a little bit of an accent. And I think you're right. I think it's from studying <laughs> French, Italian, German, yeah. Russian, and combining them all. And like, yeah, then you exactly. start sounding like Arnold, like, let's go to the gym. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm not from Austria. I'm yeah. definitely from Michigan, the yeah. Midwest. The most neutral of them all. The most neutral. Well, sometimes some Midwesterns sound Canadian. You know, oh, a, a. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. And I think, too, as an opera singer, you know, you, you see, it, you, especially tenors, you hear, oh, how are you doing? It's so great to see. And it's like, please stop talking like that. Please just, just be Oh, I feel first. like it's worse with baritones. They're like, oh, they like to oh, have resonance right. all the time no, no, while they're talking. True. That's a good point. <laughs> Yeah, let me uh, let me talk like this and show you how beautiful a voice I have. You know, it's it's very uh, yes. I saw I, I hear what you're Affected. saying. Affected, yes. Yeah, no, I'll never forget. That was one of the things that made me in school feel like I might not ever be able to be a classical singer, was because the teacher said to me, "Dear." Yes, right. Dear, you have to talk like this. You have to speak above your chords, and I was like, oh my gosh. I can't do that. I mean, I can. Smile and speak in the mask. In the mask. (laughs) It's like, okay. Wait, am I phantom now? I just got to speak in my mask. Speak in my mask. (laughs) Literally. It's too ugly. Put it up there. Say you love me. You know I do. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. We've come back to it. The only real opera. Yeah, right. You talk to anyone. It's my favorite opera. Phantom is my favorite opera. Yes. that's. Thank you. Thank you. You know nothing (laughs) about opera, right? That's the only one I know. Or actually, Les Mis, but it is my they, favorite. They think, they think they're French all of a sudden. They can speak French because they say Les Mis. <laughs> oh, exactly. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, it's rough. It's rough. But yeah, we're all we're all a little different. We all have different talents, and we all have different um, different things. So yeah, yeah. I think awesome. that is done. 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> it's done. No, is there anything else we want to talk about before we... Uh, Conte Partido. Ah... <laughs> uh. Time to say goodbye. That was, that was, yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought oh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I wanted to say, actually, this is too late. I should have said it earlier when we were talking about Eileen Farrell, but I wanted to say that she didn't make her Met debut until she was 40. She was almost 41 when she made her Met debut, and she got 22 curtain calls because oh you were God. talking about in the old oh, days yeah, exactly. to do these encores and yep. get you know tons and tons of applause. Yeah, she did 22 curtain calls. That's amazing. That is yeah. incredible. And yeah, she was I mean, 40. the average age uh, they say is just above 42 at the Met is the average age of each singer there. So, you know, it's never too late for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, we all have to, a message know. of hope. Well, but also, yes, we that's all right. Are, yeah, that's the thing is that everyone is on their own path. Sure. And their own timeline. Yep. And, you know, one of my favorite things that a teacher said to me was, you know, your voice will come into its own when it comes into its own, as long as you keep going. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and just you need to give it the space and the time that it needs to breathe and to develop and to become what it's going to become. And I wanted to say really fast about like when it comes to building audiences, like that was the other thing we sort of touched on today. Um, like it's so hard because we worked so hard to do what we do, and it's so hard that nobody still knows what it is. And yet having to talk and, you know, convey it in such a way that people feel welcome rather than like, oh, man, I'm so stupid and this is so unapproachable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and a lot of people have a negative connotation with it as well where they think it's so highbrow and you have to be of the elite to go to the opera and wear a tux and wear a big dress, which is fun if you want to dress up a little bit. But, you know, I think that that's the misconception. And Mm -hmm. and that's why I feel like we have to find a way to show people that's accessible and right. that you don't have to know every word in Italian or French or German or Russian or Czech or whatever it's in. You just need to just immerse yourself and let go. And, and, and I think you, that's why I think visually there has to be things that are done other than making these absurd productions where the supers are doing absurd things to Don Giovanni or to Scarpia that is, is completely superfluous and has nothing to do with the opera. You know, right. um, that is, I don't think that is the, the silver bullet. I don't think that that is what's going to bring a new audience to opera. Yeah. Anyway. But uh, but I guess... All right, one last thing. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Come on now. (laughs) We we say that, but then in our conversation, we also say, but they only know uh, the fan of the opera. So what though? So No, no, no. That doesn't make me mad. I just think it's funny. It's more that it's comical to me. It doesn't mean like, oh, wow, they're lesser people because they really have no concept of what opera is. I, I just think it's kind of funny. It's not because... I don't think we can capture those people. And I, I, I think we can do yeah. it in a way where we can show them. I mean, the whole point of why people went to the ring cycle is because it was like the Lord of the Rings and that it was like this epic, you know, story. And it was intriguing to people that did not have even radio at the time or didn't have te- television. This was their source of entertainment so cool. and their source to socialize. Um, and it wasn't just the elite. So I think if we can find a way in this modern age in a new way not by just making calling it a new production but doing it in a new innovative way i think that is the way you can bring people back to opera and get more excitement behind it cool that's awesome all right i agree with that i think it's a great idea i also want to say that i think a return to fantastic bel canto technique and thrilling um Voices is also a way to uh, to get people back in the I theater. I completely agree. Amen. Absolutely. Not a bunch of imitators. We're, yes, great. Trying work. to produce sound. I completely agree with you. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. The best thing. You can Real be, singers. <laughs> the best thing you can be is the fullest version of you. Yeah. Thank Yay. you. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>